us with great joy and great privilege that we each have been able to assemble together this morning. As we've already noted in prayer, what a blessing it is that we each have health and that we have life and that things are well with us, fortunate enough for you and me to come together to offer a marvelous worship to the God who made us and the God before whom we shall one day stand to give an account. On behalf of my family and me, I want to thank you for your invitation to us to be with you today. As I look over the audience, of course, many individuals of whom we are familiar, but some others whom we're not. But brothers and sisters in Christ and those of like precious faith always have that enjoyment of coming together and even becoming better acquainted and sharing a deeper and greater bond in love. As we consider a portion of the Word of God this morning, I would ask that you think with me about an episode that is somewhat common and an episode that especially our children on more occasions than are not are not that excited about. School time is shortly upon us. The public school systems will be opening and will be in full swing here in just a very short amount of time. And our children will go back and entertain themselves in those classes and learn those interesting subjects like language and mathematics and science. And on many occasions, the time will come when they will take tests. Exams and quizzes will be given, and those, again, are not always terribly fun. We all can remember, I'm sure, what they were like. They roll around frequently. But this morning, rather than talking about the tests and the exams that our school children may take, may I submit to you that God has something to say about a final exam that all of us must take. A final exam that will be administered to you and me, and it is a test, an exam that you and I must pass if we're going to go to heaven. Over the next few moments this morning, I would ask you to think with me as we search the blessed scriptures, the wonderful and sacred word of God, and study about this final exam. Let's make a few points about it, and to better illustrate, let's draw some comparisons to those exams our children take in schools. I believe the comparisons will be very fruitful for us. What about the final exam that you and I must take? Inasmuch as I do work as a teacher, I'm somewhat familiar with the way in which exams work and the administration of them. And I'm familiar with sometimes addressing students with regard to their performance on those exams. So let's notice several points that can be very fruitfully used by you and me today. One of the first things that is somewhat tragic and sad is that with regard to a final exam, sometimes one or more students are absent from the time when that exam is given. A final exam, as you and I know, is given near the end of the term. Typically, especially as a student becomes high school or college age, after all the material of the class is covered, after all the discussions are made, after all the information is presented, there's one final exam that covers all the material of that course. Again, sometimes, though, a student, due to one or more reasons, might be absent. What if the student becomes terribly ill or sick? He or she may approach the professor or leave a phone message or call and make the statement that I'm not able to be there. Suppose a person has car difficulty on the way to the exam placement that morning, but yet suppose that a student just doesn't care. Maybe the student is indifferent and apathetic and just chooses not to show up because he doesn't care what grade he makes. May I submit to you, what about the final judgment administered by God? Will anybody be absent? 
In Matthew 25, verse 32, our Savior addressed that point when he gave a graphic description of that final exam occasion, and this is what he said. All nations shall be gathered before him on that occasion, and they will be separated, those upon the right, described as sheep, those upon the left, described as goats, and the Savior will in turn address each group. But did you notice he said all nations will be gathered? There will be no absences. There will be no one with an excuse and able to say that they have not been able to come. No one will be able to affirm the fact that they're absent, for there will be none. We can't hope to bypass or miss it. Inasmuch as some students, again, are not thrilled about the final exam, they might even make excuses. They might lie to the teacher. They might claim that they're sick, but maybe they're not. There will be no absences on the great final day of judgment. The Apostle Paul, when he preached to the brethren in Athens in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, listen to the statement he made. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now let's notice what the inspired apostle taught. He stated that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. And what's more, just as certainly as that event took place, every individual, every person will stand before him in judgment, whereof he hath given assurance unto who? All men. There will be no absences on that day. And a moment ago in our very hearing, didn't the Apostle Paul again to the Corinthians write, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to the ass done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Paul did say that we must all appear there. No excuses, no absences. And thus we learn one important fact. With regard to the judgment, you and I will be present. It's an absolute certainty. But what about a second point that we might appreciate? Again, students, as the time for that final exam draws near, more than once, the question might well be asked, what's it going to cover? After a whole semester of material, most of the time it's of interest if the teacher can narrow it down. Tell me what specific topics are more needful. Let us notice that we're told in the New Testament what this exam is going to cover, this final exam administered by the great God of heaven. In Romans 2, verse 16, we find these interesting words. Paul said, that in that day when God shall judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. What will be then the basis, the standard for the judgment, the gospel? Isn't it interesting and also at the same time beautiful and comforting? You and I have the absolute entirety of what the exam is going to cover. In fact, this particular Bible that I'm holding is both Old and New Testament. That makes it look rather large. But if I were to hold up another Bible one that only contains that New Testament, this is all the exam covers. Most students that you and I are aware of in school have these big bulky books that weigh down a backpack, but the final exam in eternity is this. It's all it's going to cover. That doesn't seem too much, does it? It doesn't seem like it's an extraordinarily large amount of material. 27 New Testament books. Those books contain that blessed gospel revealed by our Savior, the Son of God, and over that material will the final exam be administered. 
Jesus had stated in John 12, verse 48, In poignant, penetrating, and powerful words he said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Here we have it. That should be a great comfort to you and me. For when the day of the final exam comes, there should be no surprise. We should not be able to say, well, I had never heard of that. I didn't know I'd be tested on that material. You see, that Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, has given us the material over which it will be covered, and it's the gospel. Jesus himself stated in John 3.16, sometimes noted as the golden text of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So far we've noted two interesting points. No absences and the test is going to cover the gospel. Well, what about a third point? It is rather sad to note that sometimes a student, especially if he or she is unprepared, for that final exam will make the statement, this test is too hard and it's not fair. In other words, they allege that the teacher didn't make a fair test. May we each understand there will be no such allegations on the day of judgment. The test will be absolutely fair. There will be no possibility of claiming that there's something unusual, something unfair, something inequitable about it. It will be fair. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Genesis 18.25? Well, of course he will. God always does that which is right. More than once in the sacred scriptures we understand the fairness and the degree to which God deals with mankind in a fair way. Let's notice one other aspect of that. When you and I stand before God in judgment, it will be by individual basis. You will not stand there and be judged for me, nor will I be judged for you. You or I will not be judged on behalf of our children, nor our children for us. We won't be judged because we're Americans, or because we're French, or Swedish. We'll be judged individually. Didn't Paul say in Romans fourteen twelve? So then every one of us shall give account of himself, singular, himself to God. That also should be a great comfort to you and me. For you see, if someone else stood before God and God judged me based on that person, that's unfair. I have no control over what that person's decisions in life were. I have no choice on what they did. But I can control my actions and my choices and my decisions. God said each of us will be judged individually. That makes it fair. Furthermore, we notice yet another point. We've seen three. What about a fourth one? I hinted at this a moment ago. In most instances, those exams that are given, say, in high school or in college that are called final exams are comprehensive. That is to say they cover all of the material of the course. May we submit that the final exam of which we're speaking today will indeed also be a truly comprehensive exam. What do we mean by that long word comprehensive? That means it covers everything. Notice that, again, there are some students who, when they begin to face and think about that final exam, will hope that it doesn't cover certain chapters or that only a small section of the whole material is covered. Jesus, though, on more than one occasion in speaking about that final exam that we will face, affirmed that all will be involved. 
Let's notice again that verse we noted a moment ago in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Notice this time, though, the latter portion of the verse. He again stated, For then we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. You and I might wish that God won't mention anything bad that day. All that will be there is only good things, but Paul said he's going to bring up to bear whatever is good and whatever is bad. We can't hope that God's going to just overlook sin. We can't hope that he will just pretend that it doesn't exist. It's going to be tested and it'll be included in the matter too. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, turning back the pages to the long ago, the wise man Solomon Though he didn't always live so wisely, as he closed that book in the last two verses, he made this remark. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon stated the point rather directly, didn't he? He stated, first of all, that the whole duty of man is to follow, keep, and obey the commandments of God. But then he said, why? Because there's coming a judgment day when every work, be it good or bad, good or evil, will be thus brought to bear. You and I must understand the exam is comprehensive. We can't hope that only the high points of faithfulness in our life will be mentioned. If there is sin in our life, it will be there. It'll be a part of the test. It's no wonder then that that comprehensive character is asserted time and again by us understanding that even the language we speak, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 12 that even every outer word will have to give account thereof in the day of judgment, even the ones that are idle? And didn't Paul say in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Final exam is going to be comprehensive. Thus, that means that we need to recognize that throughout life, we need to understand, and this brings us to point five, that we must not have that sin there. For notice, there are those in our day and time, when a test is given at school, sometimes a student can fool the teacher. Sometimes the teacher can be deceived several ways. One, what if the kid's cheating? The teacher may not ever find that out. And thus, upon grading it, the student may appear to have done well when in fact they have learned very little of the material. They in fact have mastered almost none of it, but yet they managed to get a good score by cheating. Or notice another possibility. Suppose the exam is such that multiple choices that a kid could guess and end up doing well, though again, the student may not have known the material that well. Let us rest assured there will be no fooling God on the day of judgment. He will not be deceived. The aspects, the portions, the facts of our life will be abundantly clear. If we deserve heaven, that's what we'll get. But if we deserve hell, that will be what we get. There will be no fooling him. Again, we noted the judge of all the earth always does what's right. Notice some of the statements that tell us about God's infinite nature, such as Psalm 147, verse 5. His understanding is infinite. 
We can't hope to fool him or pull the wool over his eyes, as the old saying goes. Our life will be an open testament before him. We won't be able to hide anything. How did the Hebrew writer make the point in Hebrews 4.13? Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You and I can't hide anything, be it our thoughts, be it our words, be it our actions. He knows it all. And on that day of judgment, if those sins that we've committed in life have not been taken care of, if they have not been done away with, they will be brought up and mentioned. It's clear then, isn't it, that the only way to stand justified, pleasing, acceptable, and right before Him is not to hope the sins won't be mentioned, but to have none. There can't be any. How then might we ask, do we eliminate sin? How do we have it taken care of and forgiven? And oh, how that's the greatest message of all, isn't it? Jesus sent His Son to take care of that. You and I can't take care of sin by ourselves. We aren't perfect. Inasmuch as we recall the Old Testament, God gave commandments relative to the offering of animal sacrifices, the purpose of which was to produce what was available then in the matter of handling or taking care of sin in light of the fact Christ was one day coming but he has now already come. And the Hebrew writer discusses at great length the fact that he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. Hebrews 10 verse 12. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Inasmuch as those points are stated, Christ's blood is the cleansing agent for sin. There's nothing else. No wonder that we then can read passages like 1 John 1 verse 7 wherein we read, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. Isn't it great? He didn't say some sins, a few sins, a partial nature of sin. He said all sin. Therein we find the answer. On that day of judgment, if we have availed ourselves of the blood of Jesus Christ, if we have thus been covered and cleansed by that blood, our sins have been forgiven. There will be none for God to mention. Again, we understand that once He forgives them, they no longer are a part of that book that He's maintaining. It's, if you will, He has erased it and it's there no more. You and I can see many similarities then between the final exam God will give and this final exam that sometimes our students take. But we've also seen many important differences. Let's look at another one. It's also true that with regard to the final exam that our students may take in schools, the final exam, at least in most instances, does not count 100% of the grade. They have had other tests throughout the course, homework, perhaps laboratory activities, and the final exam is just one part of the grade, not all of it. May we rest assured, though, that the final exam God will administer counts 100% of the final dispositional grade. No entrance to heaven unless we pass that test. doesn't matter what may have taken place in an earlier stage in life. We may have been faithful at one point, but maybe we became unfaithful. Maybe we forfeited our salvation. Maybe God has erased our name out of the book of life. That can happen. In Revelation chapter 3, we read of this very penetrating idea. 
our Savior addressed the seven churches of Asia, and on that occasion he addressed the church at Sardis. The church in Sardis was commended for some things, but Jesus quickly gave them this information. He said, there are some there who are still faithful and are walking with me in white. But he said, you're a congregation that is dead. You're dead. Unless you cleanse and walk with me in white, I will blot your name out of the book of life. Doesn't that make it abundantly clear? The Lord is maintaining a book of life, and those whose names are in it are saved. They will enter heaven. But what if the name is erased? Only Jesus contains the pencil that has the eraser. If you or I start to live foolishly, if we live in such a way that we bring reproach upon the church and we aren't faithful any longer, He will erase our name out of that book of life. You see, passing that final exam counts 100%. Nothing else will matter. All the things that you and I may have accumulated in life will be worthless then. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Any treasure that we lay up here will be of no benefit at judgment. When that final exam is administered, all that will matter is what we've laid up there. Isn't that interesting, beautiful, and also powerful? That's one great difference between the final exam our students take and the one we all will face. It's entirely possible a student could fail the final exam and still pass the class. That won't happen at judgment. Inasmuch as these points, comparison-wise, have been stated, we have two more to go. Notice something else that's also extremely interesting. So far, we've talked about the fairness, the comprehensiveness of that great final exam. But notice also something else that's fair to say. This is a sadness. To set the stage for discussion, note this with me. As a teacher, at least if a teacher's a good one, no teacher would like to think about the majority of the students failing the final test. Because that probably means either you made the test unfair or you haven't been a very good teacher. If you go through the whole class and then most of the students miserably fail the final exam, it just doesn't bode well for your character as an effective teacher. But when we come to the final exam we all will take, we with a lump in our throat need to realize the vast majority will miserably fail it. Jesus said so. Those aren't my words. Those aren't the words simply of Peter or Paul or James. Listen to what the Savior exclaimed in Matthew 7. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the way and wide is the gate that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus said that comparison, few will be saved, many will be lost. Jesus said that. That means many are going to fail the final exam. Many will be unprepared for it. Many will not have so lived in such a way to be faithful. Throughout the Bible, though, don't we see that on many occasions? As we mentioned in the Bible study class earlier this morning, in Genesis chapter 6, though the world population at that point may well have been in the tens of thousands, 
How many were saved when the flood of waters came in Noah's day? Eight. Only eight. Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives. That was it. The other tens of thousands perished in a situation concerning the city of Lot in Genesis 19. Though the population of the city isn't given, it must have been great. How many were saved? Three. When the children of Israel went into Egypt and came out some hundreds, several hundred years later, we understand that according to Numbers chapter 1, 603,550 fighting men of Israel left Egypt. Of that number, how many entered the promised land of Canaan? The land that flowed with milk and honey. Out of 603,550 fighting men, two entered the promised land. Two. The vast majority, their carcasses died in the, land, in the wilderness of sin, wandering toward Egypt, or wandering toward Canaan. In Jeremiah 5, verse number 1, when God told the prophet Jeremiah to search the city and tell me how many faithful there are, how many did Jeremiah find? God told him how many he'd find. He said, not one. Isn't that tragic? Not one in Jerusalem was faithful. Should we then be shocked that on that day of judgment the vast majority will fail the final exam? The vast majority will not be found faithful. The Lord said that's the way it will be. In the closing chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, as it's preceded in Revelation 21, we have a graphic statement and a record. We find that the dragon, that great beast we know or recognize as Satan, will be cast into that fiery lake of, that burns with fire and brimstone. But he said, too, all of those who follow them will be, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following, in that final chapter, chapter 22, is the beauty of heaven. Those who pass the test will be found there. Again, that's a sadness to think so many will fail it. And that's an urgency for us to make sure that we are ready. And that's our final point of the lesson today. Just as surely as a student prepares himself or herself, studying for days and weeks throughout the semester to get ready for that final test, it's no different for you and me. We must prepare. We can't expect to show up at judgment and just accidentally pass the test. That won't happen. Jesus expended great energy emphasizing the importance of preparation. Just to notice a few of the cases, recall Matthew chapters 24 and 25. The scene is very familiar to us. This was shortly prior to Jesus' crucifixion, and on that occasion... Beginning near the close of chapter 24, Jesus said, speaking in beautiful ways, He spoke about the character of, beginning in verse 36, watch. I'm telling you, watch. He emphasized it with two parables. Let's recall them in brief order. As we come to the opening part of Matthew 25, Jesus taught a parable. We call it the parable of the foolish virgins. Five of them were, five and, or were wise and five of them were foolish. The point is that there was a necessity of entrance into that place where the bridegroom was, the celebration of the marriage feast. Interestingly, five of the virgins were foolish. They had prepared enough oil to last for a little while, but the bridegroom tarried, the text said. He delayed his coming until later, but there were five virgins who were wise. They prepared enough to last a little while, 
but they'd bought extra enough to last even so that they would always be ready whenever the bridegroom came. And as you and I remember, the foolish virgins, their lamps went out for the oil was expended. And then they begged and pleaded, give us of your oil of those that were wise. But the wise said, if we do that, then we'll not have enough. Go and purchase. And isn't it interesting that while they were gone purchasing, the bridegroom came. He entered in, shut the door, and then when they come back, they begged, let us in. But he said, I don't know who you are. You weren't here when I came. They weren't ready. You see, preparation is essential. And that other parable, the parable of the talents, there was a man who with five talents was given five more. There was also a man with two talents who was given two more, and they used those talents productively, efficiently, wisely. But there was a one-talent man who took his, hid it in the earth, and then when the time of reckoning came, the other two were ready. They were ready to respond in faithfulness that they had used what they had been given. But the one-talent man simply gave back that which he had been given, but he was not commended. He was not complimented. In fact, in verse 30, the master said, Get out of my kingdom, you wicked and slothful servant. He wasn't ready. The question before us today on that final exam day, and it could be at any moment, we do not know when the Lord will return. We do not know when our time of death will be. But do we simply read in Hebrews 9, 27, Sure we do. As we notice, after death comes judgment. The certain appointment of death. Today, what about your disposition and mine? Are you ready to take that final exam? We must be ready at a moment's notice. We must be ready always and prepared for the administration of it. It may occur at any point when this old world ends. Remember, the material over which it will be covered is simply in the New Testament. 27 books. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you made your life into an open compliance with the teachings of our Savior? He came that you might be saved. He gave His life that you might not be lost. Will you take His offer of salvation up and be a faithful member of His kingdom? Realize that He states that entrance into that kingdom involves this. Believe upon Him as your Savior. Trust that He is who He said He was. Repent of the sins in your life, for they are what separates you from Him. Confess His beautiful name as your Savior, and then be immersed, buried in water, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2, verse 38. If you have done that in life, you know what a great joy it was, and you know the strength and power that was yours. Have you been faithful and true to your first calling, to your first love? If you haven't, then like Simon in Acts chapter 8, you need to be prayed for. Come forward today and let us pray for you and with you that you might be restored, strengthened, and restated to, to your former place of righteousness and salvation. Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone in getting ready for the final exam, don't hesitate any longer. It's urgent, and it's oh so serious. Even as we stand in a few moments, this hymn of invitation has been chosen. It's a convenient time. It's an opportune time. If we could assist you then, delay no longer, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.